So we're going to pick up right where we left off three months ago in Genesis chapter 30, beginning at verse 25. And um, this is not a, a passage that has natural breaks. So we're going we're gonna to start at verse 25 and read into chapter 31 uh, all the way to verse 13. So I'll invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from mine, beginning at Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, 
Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I suppose that after three months, a bit of a refresher might be in order. Uh, The closest, most important checkpoint that we could return to is chapter 28. And in that chapter, we find uh, Jacob. He's uh, sleeping soundly on a rock one night, and he dreams the most amazing dream. Uh, He sees a sort of stairway to heaven with angels that are descending and ascending on it. And above that staircase is the Lord himself. And God is gracious to reveal himself to Jacob and to reiterate all of the promises that he has made to him. The Lord says this in that chapter, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So you see what's going on here. In keeping with the promises that God made first to Abraham and then to Isaac, the Lord graciously reaffirms all of these promises to Jacob. You'll remember that these are promises concerning a people. So Jacob's offspring are going to be made into the, a great nation. They're going to be so numerous that you can't even count them. These are promises about a place. The Lord's going to give large swaths of land to Jacob and to his offspring. And these are promises regarding prosperity. God is going to bless the socks off Jacob. And all of these promises are going to come as the result of the presence and the power of God. The Lord is with Jacob, and he's not going to leave him until all of his promises come to pass. Now what we saw when we left off in June was that God's promises, these specific promises to Jacob, are beginning to come to pass. At that time of, uh, that J- Jacob dreamed that dream, he was a single dude. He had no prospects of wife, uh, wife, let alone kids. But in the next chapter and a half, what did we see? We saw the promise concerning a people, the promise about offspring, start to take shape, albeit in a very messy sort of a way. I don't know if you remember this, but 
chapter 29 and the first half of chapter 30 were like episodes of the Jerry Springer show. So Jacob ends up with two wives. Literally, these are sister wives. And these girls are, are pulling out each other's hair as they compete for his affection, as they seek to have his babies. And the security guards are still trying their best to keep them separate when the narrator brings out on stage their respective maidservants who are going to serve as concubines. So the stage is a complete mess as we cut to commercial. But at the end, standing there were 12 children, 11 sons, which you know, which we all know, kind of we can anticipate the rest of the story. These are 11 of the sons that are going to become tribes in a very great nation. So do you see what's going on there? In the midst of man's mess, God is faithful to fulfill his promises. In particular, he, he's busy forming this people, this nation, just as he said that he would. Now what we're going to get to see in our passage today is that the Lord is getting to work on fulfilling some of these other promises. For example, the promise of place. The problem is that Jacob is currently away from his, his home. In a sense, he's in exile as he's slaving away for his greedy father-in-law, his, his uncle Laban. And notice how our passage is framed with the idea that it's time for Jacob and his family to leave. You see this as the passage kicks off in verse 25. Jacob says to Laban, Send me away that I might go to my own home and country. And in due course we come to understand that this is God's command to him. As we read at the very end of our passage in verse 13 of the next chapter, where God says, Now arise, go from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. You see, the Lord is keen to get working on fulfilling this promise concerning a place. But what about the promise concerning prosperity? The Lord's promise to bless Jacob. And as it stands, Jacob has basically nothing. He's worked for 14 years for Laban, and his only wages are two wives, two women. And now his household includes 12 children. And as he puts it in verse 30, it's, it's really high time that he start providing for his own family rather than providing for his father-in-law. So Jacob has nothing at this point. And in a sense, that, that really is a blank canvas if you will, it, that blank canvas of Jacob having nothing sets the perfect stage for us to understand the main point of this passage, which is this, that prosperity comes from the Lord. Prosperity comes from the Lord. We are not self-made men and women. I think this is something that we need to always remind ourselves of, particularly as American Christians. You remember that we bristled when we heard President Obama say a number of years ago, if you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. 
it's jarring to hear something like that. And of course, President Obama believes that your success ought to be ascribed primarily to the government and uh, to the community. It's a strikingly godless explanation for someone's success. But I wonder if you've ever considered how strikingly godless is the opposite position, the conservative position, the American dream, you know, the classic rags-to-riches story about how any American armed with freedom and initiative can accomplish whatever they set out to do. It's a story about the power and the determination of the individual who pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. And I'm here to say that might be a slightly more satisfying explanation than President Obama's, but it is equally as godless. Friends, we we need to understand that it is the Lord who prospers. And in the time that I have remaining, I realize that was a very large introduction. Um, Brother Tom has probably ruined you. He's, He's probably wrapping up his third point by now. Interestingly, a bunch of us guys were at a pastor's conference this weekend and they were giving out different door prizes and they gave away a ton of books and the category to to be the winner is who's preached the longest sermon. And so as the time kept going up, people kept sitting back down and the guy that won it um, won it because he once preached an an 80-minute sermon, one hour and 20 minutes. And I thought to myself, I I can beat that. (laughs) I thought, I I can get those books next year. Anyway, in the time that we have remaining, I want to just point out three main things from this passage. And the first is that the Lord prospers pagans. The Lord prospers pagans. We see this in the case of Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, who is also his uncle. And you might wonder if it's fair for me to characterize Laban as a pagan. You might object a little bit because you've, you've heard him talking about the Lord in previous chapters, in previous episodes. Even in this one, you hear him mentioning the Lord. Yes, but don't be fooled by that. Either don't be fooled by it when, it when you see it in the Bible. Don't be fooled by it when you see it in your life. People can talk about God. People can even speak in spiritual ways without having any relationship with him whatsoever. Yes, there's, there's a lot of God talk when it comes to Laban, but that's not because he is saved, if we could put it that way. It's because he's a scammer. Make no mistake, this guy is greedy, godless, he's two-faced, he's a manipulator. In his lectures on this portion of, of Genesis, Martin Luther had some choice words for Laban. He says that his, quote, lovelessness, cruelty, and avarice cannot be sufficiently stressed. He goes on to say, Laban was a filthy and greedy man. He was a dog, etc., a monster, 
And then at one point, Luther exclaims, as if uh, Laban's right there in the room, he exclaims, You holy pope, you bishop of Mainz, which you have to understand in Luther's mind, are worse than a dog or a filthy animal. So I think we're justified in calling Laban a pagan. And like Jacob, he's his own blank slate when it comes to prosperity. When Jacob uh, first arrives on the scene, Laban has very little. He starts with basically nothing. But now, 14 years later, Laban is uh, he's an incredibly wealthy man. Maybe you know people like that. People who are incredibly wealthy and very successful. Maybe they're even horrible people. They're greedy, they're tight-fisted, they're, they're sketchy, they're manipulators. And you wonder to yourself, why does the Lord allow that? Why does God do that? Why, why does the Lord allow a person like that to prosper? And there's likely a number of uh, answers to that question, some of which are mysterious and unknown to us. But here's at least one answer. And that is because the Lord is kind. The Lord is kind. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. It's a function of God's common grace uh, that He causes the rain, for example, to fall on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. The problem with pagans, though, is that they like to grab the gifts but ignore the giver. Romans chapter 1 explains that the main reason that the wrath of God is abiding is because mankind shows no, gives him no glory or thanks, even though they know that he exists and they know that all good things come from his hand. They neither glorify him nor give thanks to him. And I want you to just see how that plays out in Laban's case. It's almost comical if it wasn't so sad. Look at verse 27. Laban says, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Oh, is that how you discovered it, Laban? You, you had to consult mediums and you had to go into the dark arts, to the spirit underworld to conclude that it was the Lord who blessed you. Do you, do you see how reluctant people are to give thanks and glory and credit to God? It's, it's crazy. And whatever, the spirit world concludes that yes, it was the Lord who has prospered you, Laban. And what the Lord gives, the Lord can take away. This passage also demonstrates how the Lord sometimes takes the pagan's eggs and makes them hatch for his people. So by the end of this episode, in verse 9, Jacob is able to say to his wives, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Now, actually, this story is just a teaser for another story that's coming about a great escape from exile. When God calls his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, but not before he spoils all of the Egyptians and uh, despoils them and, 
and ransacks them, have, has all of that wealth transferred to his people. This is how it is with the Lord. This is how it is with pagans. They don't even realize what Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22 says, which is that a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. And that brings us to a final point that I want to make about a, pro, um, a pagan's prosperity. And that is that it's temporary. Best case scenario, your wealth lasts until your death. But then what? And that, I think, is worth considering. Whether you are here today, um, someone who maybe is help, very wealthy, but you're a person who has not yet submitted yourself to the Lord, who has given these good gifts to you. Or maybe you're a Christian who is envious of the prosperity of the wicked, and you're tempted to pursue wealth and possessions and everything that the people of this world give themselves to. Maybe you're tempted to question if the Lord actually knows what he's doing. And the psalmist is actually very helpful on this point because he had a similar struggle. You'll recall Psalm 73. The psalmist says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when the psalmist thought about these things, as he's seeking to understand this, it seemed to him a wearisome task. That is, until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then he discerned their end. Friends, it, might, it, it may be that prosperity in this life is all the good that a person will ever receive from God. Wealth now, wrath for eternity to come. And that is worth pondering, as I say, whether you are a person who is devoted to your wealth and possessions, or whether you are devoted to the Lord but are, are attracted in, in, in some inexplicable way to all of the shiny stuff over there. It's so temporary. It's not worth investing your life in and giving yourself to let's look at the second point which is the main point of this passage that the Lord prospers his people so here we return to the blank slate that is Jacob he's an empty bank book if they still have those things and at the beginning of, of this passage Jacob has nothing he's got two wives and he's got twelve hungry mouths to feed and even the wives don't have anything. They've got, they don't have any dowry, um, except each of them got a maidservant. But Leah and Rachel can say in chapter 31, verse 14, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. They've got nothing either. Their, their dad has scammed them out of what might have been rightfully theirs. Imagine that, defrauding even your own daughters. But by the end they can say, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. In the end, Jacob's status can be summed up as follows. This is in chapter 30, verse 43. 
the great summary statement that says, Thus the man increased greatly. And the image there, the word there, really is the image of, it's a hydraulic image of a, of a gushing forth, a breaking forth. Um, so you've got to think and picture about explosive growth. This is what happened to Jacob. And Jacob had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is your classic rags to riches story. But it's important for us to consider how the Lord prospers his people. And I think the text highlights two things along these lines. And first is that the Lord prospers his people through means. Through means. You understand, don't you, that the Lord doesn't just prosper people in a vacuum. Some of you young people, some of you older people need to understand that he typically doesn't drop cash onto your lap as you're lying on the couch watching television, you know, your fingers orange with Dorito dust. That's typically not how the Lord works. In fact, the, Lord, uh, the Bible reser- reserves some of its strongest language for lazy people, for gluttons, for people who refuse to work. According to Scripture, if you refuse to provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So the means that the Lord ordinarily uses are the diligence and the skill of, of those who are eager to work. And Jacob, I think, is a prime example of someone like that. He says to his father-in-law, let me provide for my family. He's, he's raring to do it. He speaks in this passage about how hard he has worked, saying in verse 6 that he has labored with all his strength. He has spent himself laboring. In, indeed, from the time that we, we saw him roll that big heavy stone off the top of the well until now, we've seen how industrious Jacob is, how skilled he is at his task. So actually, before you beat me up too much, I am happy to speak about the industry and the entrepreneurial spirit and the skill of Americans. But I'm only happy to talk about that as a means. Only after we've established the the bedrock, the foundational truth, that it is the Lord who prospers. But the Lord is pleased to use means. So, So you can ask, how specifically does the Lord prosper Jacob? Through what means exactly? And in this case, it's through his breeding of sheep and goats. In verse 28 and 31, Laban tells Jacob to name his wages, to propose what he ought to be paid. Wouldn't you love it if your boss said that to you? You know, name, name your wage and I'll give it. And Jacob's request is actually very, very modest. It's like if your boss asked you to name your wage and you said, I don't know, like nine bucks an hour, eight bucks an hour. Jacob's request is very modest. He promises to to continue shepherding Laban's flocks if he will simply be allowed to keep for himself any of the off-colored or spotted animals. And we have to understand a little bit about uh, those days and that time and that area. 
white sheep are much more common. They're much more desirable. And so were um, pure-colored goats, black goats. So, so Jacob is actually asking for the much rarer of these animals and the less desirable-colored animals, the less desirable combinations. A, a, it was very typical in those days for a shepherd as his wage to receive a certain amount of the flock, say 20% for all of his work. And with the typical roll of the genetic dice, about 25% of the flock in ordinary circumstances would tend to be off-colored, mottled with spots or stripes like Jacob is requesting. So again, what Jacob is asking for is, is very modest, it's, it seems like it's doing Laban a favor. And Laban, who's a guy who's always looking for the edge and the advantage, he, he's excited about this proposal. This is great because he doesn't want those sheep anyway. And um, there's not going to be many of them anyway. So this is going to be a great deal for Laban. Jake, Jacob is basically going to get to keep for himself all of the trash. And this deal has the added benefit of being able to quickly identify which flock belongs to Jacob and which flock belongs to Laban. You know, you could tell just by looking at the flock. If Jacob kept any animal, that was, uh, sheep that was white or a goat that is not speckled or spotted, you could easily see that and you could consider it stolen, as Jacob says to Laban. So this is... Uh, this is a great deal for Laban. He's all, he's all for this. And Jacob begins to breed the animals. And wouldn't you know it, there's a bumper crop of speckled and spotted animals. Season after season, year after year. It's like the, the Punnett Square has been turned upside down. The percentages are all backwards. And instead of, of getting about 25% of the offspring, Jacob is getting the vast majority. And not only that, but he's getting the stronger of the animals, the more vigorous, because the feebler, feebler animals are mating and producing a feebler crop, and they're producing animals with coat colors that will go to Laban. And you see how skilled Jacob is, that he, he's learned the art of selective breeding, and those are some of the means that the Lord uses to prosper him. But I want you to notice that Jacob is also steeped in the superstitions of the day. In that day and time, it was thought that if, if there was some sort of a vivid image that you placed in front of the mating mother, then qualities of that image would Im- so influence the mother that those same characteristics would show up in the generation that she birthed. Okay, it's, uh, so, so what Jacob does is he takes some sticks and he peels some stripes into them so you can see the, the flesh striped sticks. He puts them in the, the watering hole, uh, which is where the animals came to breed. And as the, as the mothers are looking at those striped sticks, uh, it was thought that that would influence her to produce striped children. Now, of course, there's absolutely no scientific basis for this whatsoever, for the idea that 
The offspring are going to take on the characteristics of whatever the mother might be looking at or thinking about while mating. It's pure superstition. But before you get too judgmental, before you scoff at how ignorant these primitive beliefs were, consider that we very enlightened people think that if we play Mozart concertos to our fetuses throughout the months of gestation, then those babies are going to turn out to be geniuses. I tried it on my boys. It doesn't work. <laughs> but this, this illustrates the point that, um, that, that our human means are often mixed. Jacob is employing his great skill, but he's also exercising silly stu- superstition. And I like this. It's comforting because in the same way, our, our own effort often waxes and wanes. Our own motivations are, are almost always mixed. Our methods are very often questionable. But the Lord is just so gracious as to use these means to accomplish his purposes and to bless his people. The Lord prospers his people, yes, but through means. And then secondly, he does so despite menaces despite menaces. And this brings us back to Laban, that dirty dog. Even though he agrees to Jacob's proposal in verse 34, so in that verse he says, good, yes, let it be as you have said. Right away, right away, he breaks the rules. He, he quickly combs through his flocks and he removes all of the sheep and goats that ought to have gone to Jacob. He gives them to his son and then sends them away, three days away. So basically, he's making Jacob start from scratch. And that wasn't, that wasn't the deal that Jacob proposed. Jacob later complains that throughout this whole process, over the course of six years, his father-in-law changed his wages no less than ten times. Now, I don't know if you've ever played a game with a little kid, whether it's tag or whatever. The problem with playing games with little kids is that they're always changing the rules mid-game. You know, they, they, they make up the rules as they go, and strange coincidence, it, the new rules always seem to benefit them. So you, you tag them and they say, no touchbacks or they make up some nonsense about home base, or they tell you you can't triple stamp a double stamp or something, and it's super frustrating. Anyway, trying to make a deal with Laban is like playing a game with a six-year-old. The guy is a child. Worse than that, he's a menace. And yet, despite his menacing, the Lord prospers Jacob. Jacob can also report at the end of verse 7, God did not permit him to harm me. Moreover, look at verse 9. God has taken away the livestock from Laban and given them to me. And if you want, listen to all this from God's perspective in verse 12. He speaks, up, he speaks to Jacob and he says, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Do you understand? In spite of the menacing, the Lord is determined to prosper his people. And friends, I happen to believe that this is a word for us 
today. I'm, I'm sure you've realized by now that this world with devils filled threatens to undo us. There's menaces at every turn. There's biological ones, political ones, social ones, spiritual ones. Increasingly, it feels like everything is conspiring against us. Have you felt this way? Or is it just me? It, just, it feels like, not just, not just against us as American citizens, but, but against us as the people of God. These are dark days. And so when you watch the news, when you are doom-scrolling, which, which is a new term that's been coined for such a time as this, to, to describe the act of endlessly scrolling down your news feed or your Twitter feed or your social media, reading bad news, doom-scrolling, when you're doing that, here's what you need to hear. You need to hear God say, I see I see. You need to know what Jacob knew, which is that God will not permit them to harm me. No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. How can a weapon prosper against the people of God when God has determined to prosper his people? Listen to how the psalmist preaches to himself in Psalm 56. He says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Friends, you need to preach that to yourself every day. When the Lord prospers us through means and despite messages, Amenaces, what should be our proper response? What should be our proper response when the Lord prospers us, his people? And the answer is very simple. Praise him. Praise him. Thank him. Give credit where credit is due. I think Jacob is really instructive on this point. Throughout this passage, he's constantly giving credit to the Lord for all that he has, for all that he's able to do. Yes, there's human means. But ultimately, there is only one explanation for anything good that happens to Jacob, and it's a divine explanation. And the same thing is true for us. If anything good happens in you or through you, in your life, there's ultimately only one explanation for that, and that is that a good God has prospered you and blessed you. And so the application on this point is very simple. It's give God the glory. And I'm talking about publicly. You know, so often we struggle for, we want to have evangelistic opportunities. We want to have a platform to, to share about our faith. And I think one of the reasons for, that our ordinary conversations with people are so ordinary 
I, I think that, um, you know, uh, we waste those opportunities is what I'm trying to say. We, we give standard cookie cutter, culturally expected and bland answers to, in the conversations that we have with people. Our ordinary conversations are just ordinary. So how about this? How about the next time that someone compliments you for something that you have or something that you are or something that you've done well or for the good behavior of your children or for your success at work? How about right then and there, explicitly, clearly, give God all of the glory? I, I hazard a guess that uh, a lifestyle like that will open up plenty of opportunities to share about the goodness of God. The Lord is faithful to prosper His people. The question is, will we, His people, be faithful to give Him the praise? And let's look finally and very quickly at our third point, which is that the Lord prospers according to His promise. I think that this is a very important thing to point out. I don't want to let you go without telling you this or helping you understand this because whenever we speak about prosperity these days things are ripe for misunderstanding you've all heard about the prosperity gospel which is actually no gospel at all but there's this prosperity theology which teaches that god intends for his people to be fabulously wealthy to be perfectly healthy at all times a health and wealth preacher, it seems to me, would take a text like we have in front of us and they would have a field day. They would go to town on something like this. And such a preacher would say something about how if you would just sow a seed, read, give money to their ministry, how you, if you would just sow a seed, the Lord will multiply your modeled flocks or, or some, something. And this, of course, is terrible hermeneutics. It completely ignores the fact that the Lord prospers according to his promise. And don't miss this because actually this is the main point. This is the fullest point of the passage. Once again, we have a passage that on its face is one hot mess. It's another Springer episode. But quietly, faithfully, behind the scenes, the Lord is fulfilling his promises to Jacob. Promises like, I will be with you, and I will bless you. I will greatly increase you. I will prosper you. The point is that God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises, and we see it happening in real time in the life of Jacob. But in seeking to apply this passage to us, it's important for us to ask, has God made these same promises to us? Has he made the same promises to us as he's made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Promises about financial prosperity? And the answer is no. But actually he has much, he's made much greater and much more precious promises to us. I love what Al Mohler has said about health and wealth theology. Mohler says, quote, in the end, the biggest problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but that it promises too little. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
offers salvation from sin, not a platform for earthly prosperity. Friends, if, if you possess the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf, then you are most blessed. You are the most prosperous person on the planet. And if you are one of God's people, then you have even more than this. He's blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. He's given you a peace that passes all understanding. He's given you joy that's inexpressible. He's given you His Son. He's given you His Spirit, which is a seal of more to come. You understand that Holy Spirit has sealed you for what you stand to receive, which is an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, and it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unmodeled, unspeckled, unstriped, unfading. We will experience nothing but glory and the prosperity of all that God has promised in the age to come. And what can we say but, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how ought we to live in light of all of this, but with hearts and lips that are full of praise and thanks and glory to God. A God who is just so generous and who's so gracious to prosper His people. Amen? Amen. Amen.